Well, good morning, Calvary family. Do you have big Father's Day plans today? I'm going to go to lunch with a missionary, and so uh, we're excited about that. We, it's always fun to uh, spend time with friends. Well, last week we started our new sermon series called Forward, and we, we started in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, if, you, if you weren't here last week, uh, if you tried to watch on live stream, let me apologize. We've had some technical glitches the last couple of weeks, but I think we've got it figured out. Uh, and so uh, we should be live streaming. If you're watching on the live stream, uh, just go ahead and give us a, a thumbs up or shout out there on uh, Facebook. We'd love to just know you're watching with us. But uh, it's a, it's a, it's, how many of you know computers can be wonderful? Uh, but then there could be other times that you just want to throw it out the window. And uh, so I've done that before. Uh, it, I was done with it, and so we threw it out the window. But that was a whole other story in college. Uh, actually, it's funny. Heather mentioned to me that uh, we had a couple people ask about the tech camp, uh, whether that was for adults. And uh, we, we might have to do an adult tech camp, but this one goes up to seventh grade. And so, uh, but it might be something, you know, listen, how many, here, my dad had a theory on why kids were better on computers than adults were. Because uh, adults are always worried they're about to launch the space shuttle or something, right? Like if I hit this wrong button, I'm going to delete everything, right? And so they're, they're really timid. Uh, my dad, his, his opinion was that uh, kids, they don't care what they do because it doesn't belong to them. And so if they break it, what's the ma- what doesn't matter to them, right? And so, uh, yeah, so uh, we might, maybe we'll do a tech camp for adults. You know, that'd, that'd be fun because I, I, you know, it is challenging. So but last week we started in our, our series forward, talking about where God's leading us as a church because everyone's always wanting to know when you got a new pastor, where are we going? What are we going to do? Where are we heading? But we have to lay the right foundation. Before we can start talking about where we're going as a church, we have to understand where we've been. We also have to understand what God's doing in us. And so we started with Nehemiah chapter 1 last week is where we started at. And uh, so we went over a few things. And we actually started with the question of, what do you do when the walls are down? And what we saw is that what Nehemiah did is he prayed. Nehemiah, Nehemiah prayed, and he prayed four very specific things in his prayer. First, he interceded for other people. And then he repented himself. He repented for his sins and the sins of others and prayed that God would forgive them. But then he also, what did he do? He remembered God's promises. If you read that in chapter 1, you see what Nehemiah prayed for that morning. And then the last thing that he did is he asked for God's blessing. Too often we do it the other way around. We say, God, this is what we're going to do. Now bless it. But that's not what we desire at all. We want to make sure that we are led by God, and we want to make sure that the vision that we pursue as a church is where he is taking us. See, God is always working. God is already working in our community. Our job is to understand what the current activity of God is and to join it. We don't want to dictate to God, this is what we're going to do, bless us. We want to understand what God's doing. And we always understand this, that God wants to start with a work in us before he does a work through us. That's why it's so important that Nehemiah started interceding for others, but he started with his personal repentance. Because God wants us to come close. God wants us to be with him. And before God wants us to do something, he wants to make sure that we're with him. God is more concerned with who you are than what you do. One of the most liberating things that I ever learned as a pastor was this one simple phrase. I am not my job. I am not my job. You know, here, here in America, we, we find so much identity in our work, don't we? 
We find so much identity in what we do. We define ourselves. We like to throw out, that's why this is, this, we like to throw out titles. We like to dress up. I mean, it's, it's, you, can tell, you can tell who's a banker when things aren't going well because bankers dress nicer. Because we got to put off the, we have to put on that image that things are going better than they really are. How things work? Oh, they're great, and you're miserable. We we get so concerned because we find so much identity in what we do. But here's the thing: God wants us to know, He is more concerned with who we are in Him than what we do for Him. It's so important. We can get so busy working for God that we forget that we're working for God. We're working for ourselves. Because it feels good, doesn't it? It feels good. I spent so many years in children's ministry. I love kids coming up to give me a hug. They're so excited. Kids are great. If you, if you haven't worked with kids, uh, you're, you don't know what you're missing out. It's always funny to me when adults uh, say that they're afraid of kids. I'm like, really? They're like the least scariest people on the face of the planet. First of all, they're all shorter than you, and they're happy to see you even after you tell them, knock it off. Stop it. They'll come back the next week. They're just happy. To see. So, But kids, they just, they're thankful for what you do, but it's easy to get sucked into this place of identifying yourself with, this is my ministry. This is, this is what I do. This is who I am. And all of a sudden, we forget that we're not defined by what we do. I think I might have shared this already. I actually had a, 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 um, a nursery worker at my church down in Virginia. I had, to, um, st- I had to ask them to stop volunteering because they hadn't been in an adult service in the church in 18 years. They were always in the nursery. Sunday morning, Wednesday nights, they're always there. They weren't even serving God. And so just remember that God always wants to do a significant work through us or in us before he does something through us. That's where we were last week. This week, this week we're moving into chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah, uh, page 678 in my Bible. Uh, I'm not sure what it is in yours. But uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. And here's the question that we're going to ask today. And this is not the question I was going to originally ask today. Actually, God really, um, he spoke to me yesterday while I was at home and, uh, we're just, we're, Heather and I were just watching TV and I felt God kind of shift the whole thrust of the message today. And so here's the question that God is asking today. What do you do when you need a breakthrough? What do you do when you need a breakthrough? You know, when we, uh, when we think of life, it's pretty common for people to tell, tell us that something's impossible. It can't be done. You should quit even trying. Maybe you've had a, a situation in your life. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something spiritual. Maybe there's something in your life that somebody has told you you're just better off to give up trying. You ever had that? Man. It's discouraging, isn't it? It's not just discouraging, it's depressing. Especially after a prolonged period of trying and doing it over and over and over and over. And eventually you're like, God, I'm just tired of banging my head against the same wall again. And what do you want to do? You just want to quit. I know we've come to that point before. 
I've done it, and I've done it in jobs where I've had, I've had bosses. I'm like, man, it doesn't seem to matter what I do. They don't like me. It doesn't seem to matter how hard I work. I can't get ahead. I've had it with relationships. No matter what I do, I'm never right. I've had it with things that I've prayed about for years. That's a hard one, isn't it? When you pray about something for years and years. You're like, yeah, I pray about it, but yeah, I just kind of quit praying about it. I kind of pray about it, but, you know, it's always, it's, it's that unspoken prayer request. Yeah, God, I'm believing that, you know, if you can, you will, and maybe you'll do it sometime. But really what you're just doing is you're just, you're putting it on the list. You know, it's there, but I've prayed about it so many times, I don't think God's really going to do it, but I'll just keep it there so that people can see that I'm really praying for it. That's a hard place to be, isn't it? That's a hard place to be. And what do we do after a while? We, don't, we get cynical, but we don't really call it cynical. You know what we call it? We call it we're being realistic. We're being realistic. We're not, I'm, not really, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. It's just God hasn't done it yet, and so I know he can if he, if he so desires. But in the back of our mind, in our heart, what are we saying? It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. It's hard, isn't it? When you get to that point where you start to despair. Now, I remember last week we talked about Nehemiah. He mourned the city. He mourned that the walls were down. He mourned, grieved. This was like that ritualistic mourning where he went through and did the, 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 the cultural items of really genuine. He wasn't just sad. He wasn't just sad. He wasn't just discouraged. It was that deep personal mourning. And the way he closed his prayer was that he asked for God to provide him favor if it was his will, right? It's a big task. It's a big, big task. And as I was thinking about it this morning, I was, I was thinking of other big tasks in, in, in history. And uh, the one that actually stood out to me, because I actually read an article this week on uh, Mount Everest. How many of you have ever, anybody in here interested in climbing Mount Everest? No? All right. Adam? No. Kilimanjaro? Yeah, so uh, Kilimanjaro, Mount Kilimanjaro, which is in Tanzania, uh, they said it's the easiest hard thing you'll ever do. Um, because it's apparently it's an, it's, an, it's an easy mountain to climb. It's a gentle slope. Um, it's a weird thing. I had, a, I had, a, I had a, um, a tour guide from Arusha, which is that area in Kilimanjaro, contacted me on Facebook about a month ago asking if I remembered them. And uh, so it took me a few text messages or Facebook messages back and forth, um, but they were trying to scam me. Um, but I, I'm, I was trying to remember if it was one of my students. And so I asked Adam, I said, is this guy a student? And it wasn't. So anyways, but Mount Everest is a giant mountain, actually the tallest mountain in the world. And I wanted to share a story with you about uh, climbing Mount Everest. And part of the reason I want to share it with you is because it's one of those things that uh, was seen as an impossibility. It was seen in a possibility. So let me read about Mount Everest. It says, Mount Everest sits on the crest of the great Himalayas in Asia, lying on the border between Nepal and Tibet. The summit of Everest reaches two-thirds of the way through the air of the Earth's atmosphere at about the cruising altitude of jet airliners. And the oxygen levels there are very low. Temperatures are extremely cold. And weather is unpredictable and dangerous. 
The first recorded attempt to climb Mount Everest was made in 1921 by a British expedition that trekked 400 miles across the Tibetan Plateau to the foot of the Great Mountain. A raging storm forced them to abort their ascent, but the mountaineers... George Mallory among them had seen what appeared to be a feasible route up the peak. It was Mallory who quipped when later asked by journalists why he wanted to climb climb Mount Everest because it was there. But as they approached the mountain, Mallory actually wrote a letter to his wife and said, we are about to walk off the map. Have you ever felt like that when you're going into something big? I'm, into, I'm in uncharted territory. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. Now, a second British expedition featuring Mallory returned in 1922. And climbers George Finch and Jeffrey Bruce, Bruce reached an impressive height of more than 27,000 feet. Still not the summit, though. In another attempt made by Mallory that year, seven Sherpa, Sherpas were killed in an avalanche. In 1924, a third Everest expedition was launched by the British, and climber Edward Norton reached an elevation of 28,128 feet, 900 vertical feet short of the summit. He did it without using any artificial oxygen. Four days later, Mallory and Andrew Irving launched a summit assault and were never seen alive again. In fact, in 1999... Mallory's largely preserved body was found high on Everest. He had suffered multiple broken bones in a fall. Then in 1950 and 51, British expeditions were made, made climbs on the southeast ridge. In 1952, a Swedish expedition navigated the treacherous icefall in the first real summit attempt. So when was the first one? 1921. 30 years later, nobody's made it. Nobody's gotten to the top. Two climbers, Raymond Lambert and Tzig Norgay, reached 28,210 feet, just below the south summit, but had to turn back because of a lack of supplies. Shocked by the near success of the Swiss expedition, a large British expedition was organized for in 1953 under the, commander of John, uh, command, the command of Colonel John Hunt. At 11.30 a.m. on May 29th, 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and Tinzig Norgay, a Sherpa of Nepal, became the first explorers to reach the summit of Mount Everest, which at 29,035 feet above sea level is the highest point on earth. Nearly 200 climbers have died attempting to summit the mountain. What do you do when somebody says it's impossible? It can't be done. What do you do when you just don't see a way forward. 30 years, 32 years is what it took. 32 years is what it took. And we talked about Nehemiah, how he did his, his ritualistic mourning. You know, from Nehemiah chapter 1 to Nehemiah chapter 2, it's actually four months later. 
Sometimes when we read the Bible, we can miss the fact that time passes. We think it just all happens in one shot, right? Nehemiah prayed this, then he went to the king. But if we understand what it says in chapter 2, where they start at, it was actually four months later. And four months later, Nehemiah chapter 2, he finds himself in front of the king. He finds himself in front of the king. And it's actually at a party doesn't really say that, but we understand historically uh, what was going on. And so let me read to you. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Here's what it says. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Adaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. Let me pause here. It was a very dangerous thing for uh, Nehemiah to be sad in the presence of the king. First of all, they're at a celebration. They're at a party. He's serving the king. He wasn't supposed to be sad in the presence of the king. It was actually a calculated decision that Nehemiah made to be sad in the presence of the king. Because Nehemiah was faced with a very large task. Nehemiah knew he had something very, very big in front of him. And he also knew he wasn't going to be able to do it on his own. Nehemiah needed a very special kind of boldness to do what he had to do. In, first, in, in Nehemiah 1, verse 11, it says, Lord, let your ears be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servant who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Nehemiah needed boldness to be able to approach the task because Nehemiah had an impossible task. To rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah, there had been three attempts. Actually, Nehemiah's was the third attempt to rebuild the walls. And they had failed over and over, just like many of us. We have a big task in front of us. And I don't know what it is for you. But we've tried over and over without success. But Nehemiah, he had an impossible task, and he needed a special kind of boldness, the boldness that gave him a willingness to be sad. In the, and it doesn't sound like that big a deal, does it, to be sad in the presence of the king? But this wasn't just a minor king. This was a major thing to do. He had a position in the court that allowed him access to the king, and the king said, this can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And what did Nehemiah say there in verse 2? I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? See, not only was Nehemiah sad, Nehemiah was breaking the rules. He was breaking the rules by being sad, but there was a decree That during a celebration, you can't approach the king with a request. You can't ask him for a favor. And the king, when he saw Nehemiah being sad, he's been a king for a while. He wasn't dumb. He understood 
Okay. This is somebody trying to get something. That's why Nehemiah was afraid. Because he understood. There was something to this. The king was also suspicious. If you read what some of the commentators say, this would have been a very uncommon thing that Nehemiah was doing. Very uncommon and very dangerous. Because it put him in a position that defied the rules and decrees of a king. And it did it in a public setting. Think about that. Think about that. When you think of kings, how many of you also think when a king gets upset, it's just off with their head, right? Well, kings had absolute power. They're not like presidents. We don't elect kings. And in this time, this was the king. He was in charge of everything in his dominion. And Nehemiah went before him and said, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And what does the king say? The king said to me, what is it you want? And here's the thing I love on Nehemiah's response. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. In the midst of his concern, his fear, in the midst of being faced by the king, He still paused to pray. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him said, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. And so I set a time. I said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have letters to Asaph, keeper of the royal parks, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city walls and for the residence I will occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letter. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Nehemiah had an impossible task. And he needed a boldness to be willing to put himself out there to ask the king for assistance. But here's the other thing that Nehemiah needed. He needed the faith that his prayers to God would be heard. Many of us today need a breakthrough. I don't, I don't know what it is in your life. Maybe it's a family member that, that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it's a work situation. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's ministry. I don't know. But I do know this. The question that God asked to me last night, what do you do when you need a breakthrough? What do you do when you need a breakthrough? Nehemiah needed a breakthrough. It was an impossible 
task. Everything about him said, everything in front of him, if he had asked his friends, hey, I've got this idea to go build the walls of Jerusalem back, they would have told him, that's a bad idea. They have been there, tried that, and failed. And then if he had further explained his plan to say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in front of the king at the party and say, I'm sad. And I need your help. His friends would have told him, this is a bad plan. This is a bad idea. How many of you have had that? Somebody in your life. You're crazy. Give it up. Don't do it. God must not want to answer your prayer. Smith Wigglesworth Wigglesworth used to say, if you haven't prayed about something 70 times, you haven't really prayed about it. How many times did Jesus say, forgive, you know, 70 times 7? It's really, it wasn't giving a number to see, you you could do the math. You're like, okay, that means I need to do it like 440 times or something. No, Jesus was saying, it's just, you keep on in faith. You keep on trusting When you need a breakthrough, what do you do? Nehemiah needed to have faith that God would respond. Not not just like a cliche, I know God hears my prayers, but genuine faith that God would respond. Respond. See, when we lack that faith, what do we do? We start to insulate ourselves. We start to protect ourselves. We start to build walls around ourselves to keep ourselves safe. Because what if God doesn't come through? What if God doesn't come through? What if it takes more than one time of praying? Nehemiah is four months from the beginning of chapter 1 to where we were. It was half a century from when the temple had been restored. It had been 50 years, but the walls were still down. And they were still believing that God would do something about it. He needed faith that God would respond to his prayer of previously, where he said, Lord, your ears be attentive, prayer to the prayers of your servant, and to the prayer of your servant who be, be light and then revering your name. Give your servant success today. By granting him favor in the presence of this man. You know, I was reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Matthew 17, 20. What did he say? He said, oh, ye of... He replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? They're tiny. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed. You can say to this mountain, move from here to there and nothing, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. A lot of people have moved to a, um, an academic knowledge of God. I'm aware of what the Bible says. I've never seen it myself, 
But I believe God will heal. But I've never experienced it. You know, on Wednesday nights, we're, we're going through the Living in the Spirit uh, series. And uh, I really appreciate something that Dr. George Wood said. George uh, Wood is the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. He said, you know, you, you can't have uh, Pentecostal experience without Pentecostal expression. It's hard to have that faith that God's going to work a miracle if we've never experienced it, isn't it? But here's the question. Will we still have the genuineness of faith that like a little child, even though it took weeks for that cut to heal on their finger, they'll hold it up and say, Jesus healed me. That's a faith. That's a faith that says it comes through Christ. That's a faith that Nehemiah needed. Even though other people had tried and failed, Nehemiah believed that this is what God was calling him to do. We as a church, what is our faith? What are we believing God for? You as an individual, what are you believing God for? What do you need breakthrough for? I believe we as a church need breakthrough to move forward in the vision that God is laying out for us. What do we need a breakthrough for? We need to know how we're going to reach our community for Christ. God opened a great door this week. I had a meeting with uh, the mayor of Lakewood. Just wanted to meet him, and so I, I set up a meeting. But while we were there, the township manager came in. And here, it was a half an hour meeting. I just told him, I said, guys, I want you to understand, um, we want to be a good neighbor in our community. I said, now don't get me wrong, we want to tell people about Jesus. We want to evangelize the community. We want people to know that we love them. We want people to know that Jesus loves them. But more than anything, we really, we want you to know, I'm not here because I need something from the city. I'm here because we as a church have something to offer our community. And we want to be part of our community. We want to love our community. And one of the things that I'm praying about as your pastor is how are we going to love Ocean and Monmouth County? How are we going to share the love of Christ with Ocean and Monmouth County? How are we going to reach Tom's River, Brick? How are we going to reach Lakewood? How are we going to reach Howe? How are we going to reach Jackson? How are we going to reach our community? How are we going to find breakthrough in the Spirit so that we can share the gospel of Christ with those around us? How are we going to do it? What do we need to do? We need to have faith that God's going to open those doors. How are you going to find breakthrough in your life? How are you going to find it? Well, the first thing is we have to have a boldness to ask. Nehemiah needed a boldness to ask, didn't he? But then we have to have the faith that God hears. But not just hears, but that God responds. Even if it takes more than once, twice. Even if it takes more than a year, two years, three years. How many of you have something you've been believing for for five, ten, fifteen years? Do not give up your faith today. We have been waiting to see it come to fruition in our lives, and I believe in faith that God will bring it about. I believe that we will see it. I believe that the best days for our church are still ahead of us. And that means that we have to have the faith 
to move forward in what God has called us to be. We have to have the boldness that Nehemiah had to ask God for it. And then we have to have the faith that he is going to do it. But here's the verse, what's in verse, what's in verse eight is so important. It says, and because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. See, the breakthrough that we need, it's not in us. It's in God. We can't do it on our own power. We can't do it on our own strength. We cannot, by the sheer force of will, make it happen. We have to be led by God. We have to believe that God is going to move. We have to believe that our faith is in him. Not in my own strength, not in my own ability, not in my own cleverness, not in what I can do on my own. What I can do in Christ is where my faith lays. It's in what he will do through me. But we have to be connected. He wants to do a work in me before he does a work through me. He wants to do a work in us as a church before he does a work through us. Where is our faith? Nehemiah had to go to the king to ask. Because the king represented power on earth, right? The king was going to open doors for him. But his faith wasn't in the king, was it? The king, if you think about it, even though he was the most powerful person in his kingdom and he had dominion that he could command generals and armies to do whatever he wanted, but the king in this story is really just a tool. The real power and authority in this story is what God did because his gracious hand was on Nehemiah's efforts. The king in this one, he's just the banker. He's the one that had the resources. And God used the wealth of the wicked for the righteous. What are we believing God for breakthrough for? I believe we're believing as a church that we're believing for an opportunity to love our city, to love our city, to love our county, to love our area. What are you believing a breakthrough for? And where have you placed your faith? Have you placed it in your own efforts? Have you placed it on the back burner? They say God might eventually get there. Or I'll keep on praying about it. I don't really think he's going to do it. Have you stopped praying about it at all? Have you given up? I'm here to tell you this morning. God wants you to have a breakthrough.